This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. for this to transform us. So, if you're there, Ephesians 4, let's start reading verse 17. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. This is a play on words. He's writing them saying, he's writing to Gentiles, or non-Jewish people, saying, don't live like how you were. You have a new identity now that runs richer than even your ethnicity. It's something that's at a soul level of who you are. And he says, they were living in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of, of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, and must not, and, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. So, He's writing this church, and these, this is that long, lengthy passage where it can really be summarized into two categories that he's trying to get at. Number one is your mind, and number two is your mouth. He's trying to tell this church that the starting point for you to start living out this high calling is you have to change your thinking. Right? The, the, the center, the control center for your entire being, your mind, your thoughts, your will, has to change. Because your imagination and the way that you put thoughts together and your desires are all backwards. And you have to start changing that. He starts to tell you how to do that. And then the, at the last part, he starts talking a lot about how you speak and your mouth. And we talk about why that's so important. How those two things go hand in hand. So, very first thing, your mind. So, Albert Einstein, smart dude, right here. So, it says this, the world, as we have created it, or created is a process of thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. I just love that simple truth that everything around us 
is a result of someone's thoughtfulness. And we can't change our world, and we can't change us until our thinking changes as well. So, uh, any college football fans in the room? Not? Yeah, Encinitas, I don't know what's up. It's just like, there's a couple of you, and I, I appreciate you. Maybe you just hang out on Saturday sometime. Um, I love I love football watching it. Don't like judge me. Like, no, you like concussions. Sorry, no. <laughs> but there's there's something about fall, right? The weather gets cold in other parts of the nation, I'm sure. Um, right? It just, and football's on, and you can just have those kind of lazy weekends if you don't have kids. And you just sit down and watch football. And then one of my most uh, favorite teams to watch. I don't, they're not my team, I don't like them, but one of the most fascinating teams that I've been observing the past years, three years is Alabama. So, uh, and, and, if, and if you don't know anything about college football, let me just say, there has never been a college football team like this before. Uh, and and that's, that's not just me saying that statistically. Uh, in the past 10 years, since Nick Saban has been his coach, there has never been a team that is ranked higher year after year, that has less losses, more championships. And what's amazing about this is they change their players every two years. How, how do you have a 10-year-long run of the most winningest football program in college of football when everything is always changing except for the coach and the culture? And I think there's something about this football team, why it is so um, year after year dominant. I think it has a lot to do with thinking. You know if you go to Alabama and play for Alabama, you are going to win. It helps them recruit. It's, it's a culture. It's a mindset. And so one of the things they do, and they have, they have a whole department there for sports psychology that helps create this culture of winning, is when, if you're an opponent and you show up at Alabama Stadium, uh, uh, over the locker room, you'll see this image um, right there. This is what it says, the fail room. So you're Ole Miss, you're Tennessee, you're LSU, and you're there to play, you're Georgia, you're there to play your rival, right? Auburn, across, across town, you're there to play Alabama. This is where you get ready, is the fail room. This is banner just painted over you, and they now have the psychological exercise to not read it or believe it. But they all know they're about to play the best football team in college football, year after year. And so there's truth in that statement, and they have to do work not to believe it. It's fascinating, I, and I don't know how much this plays into it, but what I do know is that there are strong messages that go into you psychologically when you come up against something like this. But the reason I'm bringing this up is I believe that this is so true of us. That you're here, you come to church, you just started coming to church, and a lot of you, this is a brand new process for you, a new, a new experience for you. In your entire life, you've had this painted over your life. Oh, failure, fear, anger, Depression, addiction. There's something, there's words, there's a destiny that's painted over you, and you spend your days battling against that in your mind, and it's silent and lonely, and no one knows it. You fight it. 
And what Paul is doing is he's addressing, he says, you, he says you, these things are true of you, but you still believe these things. Your mind hasn't changed, and so your actions aren't going to change. You have to start changing how you believe, how you think, your mind, so that your behaviors and your words and your relationship follow suit. But it starts with your mind. And I love Paul because he's really practical here. And he just dives in and gives us some insight on how do you change your thinking? How do you get out of that route? Because if, if you study psychology, you know that you have neurological pathways. And so when you experience something, it's sent to groove into your brain. And the more you think about it, the more you do it, it gets deeper and deeper. And this is how addictions start. This is how habits start. This is why I say it takes 21 days to break a habit is because what's happening is you have to reshape your brain. And so Paul gives us some biblical insights. How do you change your thinking so that you can actually stop not believing that you are a failure, whatever is painted over your life, and you can start believing you are an adopted, chosen son or daughter, highly esteemed, loved, a masterpiece, the resurrection power inside you. How do you start living like that painted over your life? So he gives us some insight. The first thing that he does, he starts talking about ignorance. Ephesians 4.17 says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do, right? They, they live with that over their life. And the futility of their thinking, futility means uselessness. Their thinking is not helpful. How many of your thinking is, doesn't help you? Right? You are your own self. The psychologists call this your anti-self. It, it beats yourself up. He says that's what their thinking is. It's useless, futile thinking. He says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now the opposite of ignorance is information. And so what Paul is saying is that they don't have the right information. They don't have the right knowledge to battle that ignorance. They just think this is how it always is. And so the first point is this. If you're taking notes, if you want to change your thinking, you have to change your information intake. Simple. But this is why we teach the Bible every week. Is we need it. We don't need a sermon. You don't need a TED talk. We need the truth of God's word to run over our lives and our thoughts and our minds and our imagination so that we can start to be changed. But it begins with what kind of information that we are letting ourselves have. And the problem with that is we have more information thrown at us than ever before in all of history. The University of Southern California, who is my favorite football team, um, did a study in 2007 about information. Now this has obviously even surpassed their research, but their research states that 100 years ago people were lucky to read the equivalent of 50 books in a lifetime. But now, in people's, uh, in 1986, the information that people would intake was about the equivalent of 40 newspapers, like an 86-page newspaper, remember those? Uh, There's the equivalent of about 40 newspapers a day. In 2007, the invention of the iPhone came out. Facebook became public for everyone. Uh, and so it's obviously beyond this. It went from 40 newspapers a day of information to 176 newspapers a day of information. 
some people believe that we receive more information in a day than people in the Middle Ages receive in their entire life. And we're talking about content, words, images, commercials, advertisements, just thrown our way. So the problem is not that we have a lack of information. The problem is that we don't have the right information. Right? We, we don't have the right information. And just something I thought was really amazing is that the amount of information that is currently, so I want to figure this out, nerds, um, and I'm just going to recite their nerdy, geeky uh, stats that they did. This is pretty incredible. They, they said, okay, well, how much information is out there like right now today? This is in 2007. And they said that there is 315 times more than sands on all the seashores in the world. Just think about that. Like, how much information is just in our world? But then he flips it and he says, but what's amazing, more amazing than that is that is less than 1% of how much information is in one strain of DNA that makes up a human being. Feel special? It reminds me of that verse in Psalm 139, 17. says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. How about this? If you want a change of information, how about this? Our God knows every bit of information there is to know about you. Infinitely more than the sands on the seashore, the information out there on the web. He knows you. And He thinks about you. Let's just start there. And that God who cares that much about you is for you, not against you. Cares about you. Calls you his son and his daughter. Let that be your starting point for information tonight. And like I said, go read Ephesians 1 and start, start reading. This is why this is why this we just talk about this all the time because we just fall into these traps of like. Here, I'm going to listen to this podcast and this radio station and read this blog and I'm going to talk to my friend here. I'm going to fall asleep looking at social media. And we're inundated with information all along. God's like, I, I gave you truth. Life-changing truth that builds you up and tells you who you are. And yet you give me five minutes, maybe a day. Why do you think you have a problem? It may be the information that you are letting into your life that needs to change. But that's not enough. Information is, is definitely needs to change. What we see here is that it's more than information. The next verse, from verse 18, says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their Heart. And so let's, let's move here from information to imagination, right? Let's move from here from, from knowledge to meditation. What, what, what actually grabs your attention and where do you put your mental energy towards? Because what he says right here is hand in hand with their lack of knowledge is a callousness of heart. They're numb. They've lost feeling. Because they have let things go over them and hit them so many times, they have lost feeling all together. It's so interesting because I, I, there's so many times in my walk with Jesus 
where I'll hear him say something, and, and the problem is I've known that for years, but I've never let it sink in. Because the problem is not information, the problem is the callousness in my heart. I can't let it get from here to here. And Paul says, this, this is also the problem. And so as we're looking at this, and we're talking about regaining feeling and regaining focus on this, that means that we need to actually change how we're addressing, not just what we're doing, but our mental energy, what we're focusing on. Because what happens, and I don't know if you're like me, so much of what gets my attention is what worries me, what I'm not good at, what I'm trying to control. That's what gives my thought life. I think if I, if I think about something enough, then I'll fix it. If I worry about something enough, it won't happen. None of these things, by the way, are true. I remember having my first anxiety attack nine years ago and having a couple of them and being so freaked out by them that I started having anxiety worrying about my anxiety. Mm. I'm sitting down with my Christian counselor and I'm just I'm like, ah, I'm freaking out. He's like, what's going on? And I'm like, well, I don't want to have another one. So I'm constantly thinking about it. And he's like, you have anticipatory anxiety. I'm like, what's that? He's like, you have anxiety about anxiety. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know why? He's like, because you think by worrying about it, you're controlling it. And he's like, how's that working for you? And he's like, it's not. <laughs> Joyce Myers offers some insight. She, she talks a lot about biblical meditation. It's a refocusing on truth, God's word, what he says. And she, and she says it's so brilliant. She said, if you can worry, you can meditate. Because worrying is just meditating on your problems. Come on, preach. Yeah. Like that, that was like, that's me. Like, I'm great at meditating. Are you kidding me? That's why I'm called Encinitas, right? This is like the Mecca meditating. Because if you can worry, you can meditate. That's all it is. But I think a lot of times we don't talk, and sadly, we don't really have a great theology for, for meditation because we associate it with maybe an Eastern religion or something it's like, well, I don't know if that's really Christian, so we're just going to stick with worship and singing and praying. But this is richly and profoundly biblical that we would meditate on the Word of God. And yes, it does look a little different. Let's just, let's just take a minute. I'm just going to give you five principles on biblical meditation because this will help move you from information, which is good, to focused imagination, diving in and letting that, the Word of God reach your callous hearts. Amen. So, here you go. Number one, biblical meditation. It starts with, you have to focus. So, Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I love that. that like, fix my eyes. I'm not looking at anything else. So, meditation is just for 101. Focus. Sit down with your Bible, turn off your phone, okay? I'm serious, like, just, just get away for a second. For me, this is just my fact, you don't have to do this. I've made it my morning ritual that when I wake up, the only thing I'll do on my phone is I'll read a verse. One verse, not a chapter, a verse. It's not my whole, my whole quiet time, but this is my morning ritual. And then I'll hop in the shower because how I wake up. And I spend my shower thinking about that verse I just read. I'm yeah. focusing, I'm meditating on just truth. It's all I want to know. It's just that I want to start my day letting that wash over me, not just in the shower, but mentally 
what is the truth of God. So that's number one, focus. Number two, meditation means to understand. Psalm 119.27 says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Love that. Make me understand the way. So it's not enough just to read about God's truth. You have to desire to understand what it means. How many of you guys have ever read that? Like, that doesn't make sense. Thanks, Paige. You know? You know what underlining is? It's just like, I think I understand that one. <laughs> Part of meditation is seeking out the truth of it. So get a study Bible. Text a friend. Look it up online. I get a good book. I mean, get a commentary. I mean, do, seek to understand. This is why I like to hear Divina Journals we love so much. It says, read it three times out loud. Love it. Simple. Like, don't just glaze over and gloss over it. Like, what does it say? Understand it. Number three, biblical meditation means to remember. Psalm 143.5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. So this isn't just about meditating on scripture, this is meditating about God's faithfulness. My, my beautiful wife has a saying, she says, rehearse the faithfulness of God. I love that. Because there are moments where I frankly don't feel God. I wish he was speaking to me and I don't hear him. But you know what I can do? I can look back at the moments where I saw him heal my daughter. I can look back at the moments when I saw him pull me out of a destructive lifestyle when I was a teenager. I can look back and see when he showed up when I was lost in grief and depression. I can see God's faithfulness. And part of meditation is I look backwards and I remember. I think about what he's done, even if I can't see what he's doing. Number four, biblical meditation means to worship. Psalm 1, 2 says, but his delight, his worship, his love is the law of the Lord. And on his law, mentions day and night. It's so interesting. You start thinking and meditating on the goodness of God, it will always lead you to worship. Amen. Man, God, you're so good. You're so faithful. Because you can't think about God's goodness and read about him and not end up in a place of like, wow. Wonder and awe. And the fifth thing, which is maybe the biggest that we miss when it comes to meditation, is to meditate, you have to apply what you thought about, what you've been focusing on. So Joshua 1.8 says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I love his words to Joshua as he's entering the promise and meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do everything that's in it. This is so essential. Listen, if you want transformation, it's not just about what you get, what you know, and it's not even necessarily even about what you focus on. It has to lead you to living it out. This is where that begins to be enforced. And just, just a quick analogy just to kind of prove this, uh, I remember when I started skateboarding, and skateboarding began with information. I would watch other people skateboard. I saw what kind of skateboards they had. I watched them do tricks. I watched them all the time. Okay, this is interesting. I started to meditate on it, focus on it. And I started to look at videos. I started to watch more closely. started to focus on it. But then I started to do it. I started to apply it. I started to learn the science of it. And you know what's amazing is as I began to live out and apply 
what was what I was observing, all of a sudden my imagination was skateboarding. I would drive and I'm like, oh, a four-step, I could ollie that. You know? I would look up at ceilings and be like, that would be a cool skate park. You know, there's just, I would see like church buildings, I'm like, man, I mean, everything about my, my teenage world was revolved around skateboarding because I was informed by it, I focused on it, I started to live it out, and all of a sudden, I was different. I couldn't see things the same anymore. And this is what God wants for you. Not skateboarding. But with the abundant life Jesus is offering you, relationship with Him. You've learned about it, you've focused on it, you started to do it, and all of a sudden, everything looks different for you. A really annoying boss all of a sudden is the person made in the image of God who's probably hurting and needs love. Your spouse who's getting on your nerves is actually more tired than you are and needs grace. Right? That, that person who's come aside and just kind of bugs you, all of a sudden you remember that God is more patient with you than you could ever be with them. You just see things differently because your mind has been transformed. Amen. Second point tonight has to do with our let me actually just read this last portion. I don't want to skip on without reading the end of it. Starting in verse 19, it says, Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over. This is what I mean by applying. When you start thinking about something enough, you will give yourself over to it. Whether it's a desire that's destructive, or whether it's for a mission that's kingdom. What happens if you focus on enough, you will give yourselves over to that and in their case, says they gave themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So just homework assignment, as you go home, as you lay in bed tonight, just ask God just two questions. Lord, what needs to be taken off? What needs to be put on? Your mind's that you're thinking. And let that seep in. Let Him, I'm not going to tell you what that is, let Him speak that over your life. And then our last point tonight has to do with, with our mouths. Um, I want to just kind of give a disclaimer. I am preaching to myself. This is not a great shining week for me when it comes to my speech. Um, this morning I literally, uh, Augustine was, had somebody who was trying to whack his sister in the face. I come around the corner bothered because I'm trying to study for my sermon on my mouth. And I literally just, and granted, I was actually frightened he was going to hurt her. But I just yelled. And I'm like, hey! And he literally shook and started crying. And I was like, oh, there's probably a better way that I could have done that. A <laughs> PTSD kid. But I mean, there's this moment where I just, I like lost my temper. And there's been moments this week I just, my mouth has just not been what I wanted it to be. And, but here's what's interesting about the mouth, okay? You're taking notes. The mouth is both a thermometer and a thermostat. Mm. A thermometer's job is to tell you what temperature it is. James says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know how your heart is? You want to check your thermometer? Look at your mouth. My heart 
needs more work than my mouth. This is what Paul is writing to you. My mind. What I'm focusing on. I don't need to just stop raising my voice or stop saying these words. I, I need something deeper to change me. Amen. And the second thing is, is your mouth is also a thermostat. It sets the temperature. Right? It changes the atmosphere. The words you say drastically impact people. Let's just read a couple of verses as we close this chapter. Just to, again, this is exactly what Thing. So Ephesians 4, verse 25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Paul's oh, like, hey, some of you need to actually say something. The fact that you're not speaking the truth in love and you're not speaking the truth to your neighbor actually means that there's fear in your heart. You're a pleaser. And he said, that's certain to be so. And then he goes on the other end of the spectrum. He says, some of you are just too angry. It's way too easy for you to confront people. So whatever it is he's addressing, he says, listen, your mouth will tell you the condition of your heart. And that needs to change. And then he goes down to verse 29. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ has given you. <laughs> Let nothing come out of your mouth unless it is helpful for building others up. Man, you could just chew on that one for a long time. Talk about meditating on something. Just, just put that little filter. Is this going to help build someone up? And here's the caveat according to their needs. Are you helping build them up because it's going to help you? I did it all the time with my kids. I'm like, hey, like, stop, you know, stop making that sound. I'm not caring about their needs. Like, it's annoying. Right? Like, building myself up. No, no. What, what is going to help them according to their needs? Because your words are. Um, this might strike some of you guys, it might shock you, um, but I'm not a scientist. Um, I went to Bible college to avoid science and math at all costs. And here I am. But there is, um, I, there is a really interesting study done, and a guy who's writing a book, he's a Japanese professor. We did a study on water and words. His name was Masuro Imoto. And what he began to do is he began to look at water's crystallization and cold temperatures. He got a, um, a fast-acting camera and began to photograph water's responses uh, to words. Tones, not just the actual words, but the tone, the loudness, whether it's gentle or sweet, the actual wording, and like tape words around the center of a glass. And he photographed what would happen the molecular structure of water as a result of words. I just want to show you a couple of these pictures that I found really fascinating. So this 
is what happened to water when it says, you make me sick. I'll show the next one. This is what happened to water when it says, love and generosity. Is that crazy? Or, or maybe it's not. Maybe that actually makes a lot of sense. That when our bodies is mostly water, that at a molecular level we respond to words. We are changed by them. And again, I, I don't want to pretend to know all the science that goes on behind this, but what I do know as a pastor, as a human being, and because of what Scripture tells us in Proverbs, is that life and death are in the power of the tongue. This is why Paul says, listen, you have been redeemed, adopted, you're brand new. And if you want to live like that, it starts with how you think. It starts with your mind, it starts with your imagination, what you focus on, it starts with how you respond out of that mental state. And the great place to start with that is with your mouth. Has that really been changing? And, and I think if you're like me, immediately I just focus on the mouth part. Okay, I'm going to change my speech. But God's bigger than that. He's like, no, no, no. Let's go to the root. There's something deeper inside of you that needs to be reminded that you're not in the fail room anymore. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're made in the image of God. You've been adopted. This is true of who you are. Think like it. Speak like it.